let's be frank, the entire reason to listen to this song is to listen to the weird shit that he says about the sex dwarf. So if I can't hear that, then what am I doing here, right? (laughs) Hello and welcome to another week of 1001 album complaints the show where friends musicians and above all fans of music break down some of the most influential albums of all time as listed in the book 1001 albums you must hear before you die now don't worry if you're not super familiar with this album we're going to tell the story behind it of this album of this band we're going to play lots of clips along the way and fair warning we are going to make fun of this record. We're musicians ourselves. We have the utmost respect for anyone out there making music, putting pen to paper, putting song to tape. But we also show that love and respect by nitpicking and mocking and having a laugh. So get ready for that. My name's Rob. I've been reading every inch of the liner notes since I was a kid, and I've always, always wanted more. Now today, we are talking about the debut record from a band who refer to themselves as ambassadors of sleaze. Of course, I'm talking about Soft Cell and their debut record, Nonstop Erotic Cabaret. Let's go ahead and play a clip of their biggest hit by several miles. This one's called Tainted Love. you have an idea of where our heads are at. I feel confident you must have heard that song at some point in your time on earth, but we're going to dive deep on this one. Before we introduce our cast of characters for tonight and begin walking down soft cell lane, I just wanted to point out that the podcast is currently on its longest streak of yes votes. See, at the end of this, we're going to vote on whether or not you really need to hear this record before you die. Does it actually belong on that list? And currently, we are on our longest streak of yes votes ever in podcast history. Nine in a row. Wow. Woo. What, since Jamiroquai was the last one that we said no on? I think so. And now, to be fair, our listener request month happened quite recently, and that was a bit of a stacked deck of very popular records. But now I'm starting to wonder if the Albinator is bathroom scale correcting for us or seeking revenge or something like that. So we're going we're gonna to have to see. I don't want to spoil where these takes are going. But let's introduce everyone who's in studio tonight with a tweet-length review of nonstop erotic cabaret. I can barely say the name. Let's go first to Tom. I don't get it. Dimery, I don't get this one at all. It's like early synth exploration by squirrely perverts. I don't understand what is going on with this album. I listened to it. I did not like it at all. I listened to it a whole lot more, and it made me like the one song that I knew and kind of liked even less. I'm hoping that I can be turned into a positive listener tonight, but I do not get it at all. Okay, thank you for that. We're going to try to explain the story that is Soft Cell and why Robert Dimery might have put them in his book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. But let's throw it next to Marty. I was thinking that Soft Cell is probably the only band that was a one-hit wonder where they didn't even write the song that made them famous. <laughs> and my, ne- my next thought was, you know, at least Chumba Wumba got a big you know, payday out of it. Thank you for that. We're going to get in. We're going to get explain all that, too. Yeah. Go ahead, Tom. I, w- I would give a counterpoint on that. I believe that band from the 90s, Coolest Shaker, that had that one hit, which was just Deep Purple's Hush, that they played slightly up-tempo. That was a big hit for them. 
I've always actually liked that version of it, too. I don't think it generated as much cash as this, but you're right. There's no. probably been some other yeah. examples of that, too, if we really start going and looking. And maybe the listeners will write in and tell us some other examples. But this was this was a mega hit, and we're going to talk a lot about that mega hit and where it came from. But first, my name is Rob, and here is my tweet-length review. Random guy with a drum machine joins forces with a self-styled performance artist whose biggest claim to fame before this was stripping naked in front of a full-length mirror and smearing himself with cat food. Picture how that record sounds. Unsurprisingly, you nailed it. <laughs> performance artist was the least surprising find of the week. <laughs> You're a performance <laughs> artist. Crazy. Did not expect that. This was a bit of a challenging week. We are going to tell the background of Soft Cell and these songs shortly but first i just wanted to go around and get to go a little deeper on those general impressions tom t tell me a little more about how your week was well generally speaking i mean it's minimalist synth layering going on like i said early synth sound exploration there are some cool sounds that they get out of synthesizers and i understand that at the time it wasn't plugins and buttons and everything was just a preset that you could easily make these sounds. There was more that went into generating these sounds, and I can understand that, and I can respect that. But these songs didn't sound fully baked to me a lot of the time. It sounded kind of empty, and instead of doing intelligent layering a lot of the time of a bunch of different minimalist parts on top of each other, they just opted to turn the synth way up because half the time, the synth is louder than the lead vocal by a healthy clip. And I did not understand that at all. Well, they were like, we might as well lead with the thing that's in tune consistently, right? <laughs> oh, God, Lord, yeah. There's some issues with the singing, certainly. And I know the subject matter is going to come up a whole lot. And, like, I get it. You like kinky sex. But, like, every musician from the 70s and 80s was into kinky sex shit. It does not make you special, and it doesn't make your album interesting. And they seem to lean into that maybe a little bit too much of the, like, we're so interesting and everybody else is such a square. And, like, I think everybody else is actually probably doing a lot more kinky shit than you think they are. I think my biggest complaint... I, so, actually, let me start with what I liked about it. I do agree that some of the synth textures and the rhythmic hits have some vitality to them. So I think that the gentleman behind the drum programming and, and synthesizers shines, at least on occasionally on this record. But that said, I think a lot of the productions and definitely the songwriting feels fairly tossed off, which you alluded to as well, Tom. They feel like first takes. They feel like improvised takes a lot of the time. And I just, it's hard to stomach that. I agree. This was a bit of a, a frustrating listen and I kind of agree with both of you guys said. I, I think maybe they were approaching something releasable and still released it. <laughs> <laughs> and my other comment would be that from what I've read, they, they weren't really together very long. And so maybe there was something there that never was realized because they, they only put out, whatever, two and a half albums. Yeah, and I think what we're going to talk more about and what I got from context was that they did inspire a lot of other people. So it feels like one of those, at best, it feels like one of those proto-bands that set other bands a sale and let the people know what was possible and things like that. I think that's probably the most charitable take. But let's dive into the background a little bit. So this band, I learned just this week, is made up of two gentlemen. One guy is called Mark Almond. He's the singer and the lyricist. And the other guy is called Dave Ball, and he plays the keyboards and does all the drum programming. These two, I never knew this was a duo, so, you know, of course I'm familiar with the big hit, but it's, it's only two fellas. They are thought of as pioneers of this genre called electropop. So whatever that means to you from, from Human League on through to Stereo Lab and, <laughs> all, and beyond. All the way up to Nogglebet, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah exactly they met up they are both from a city in england called leeds it's in the north part of england and it's maybe about an hour and change drive away from manchester so kind of in the far north and they met up at school at a place called leeds polytechnic at the time this guy mark almond was a performance arts major and this fella dave ball had a makeshift studio 
on campus. And after a chance meeting, Mark Almond was working on a performance art piece that he needed score music for. And he asked Dave Ball to help him work on uh, some of that music. And from there, they pretty much started writing songs and recording demos. And that became Soft Cell pretty early on. This is about 1978. Is any indication of what that performance artist piece was? Like, did he just like not pee for five days and you like get to see him do a little pee dance <laughs> while he's like trying not to wet himself? Is that what we're talking about? I assume because that was the anecdote I heard was that one of his pieces was the standing naked or stripping naked on stage and smearing himself with cat food. Who goes to those shows? I really I want to meet the people that are like, no, this is my bag. I go to random performance artist shows. This is a man who just screams in a mirror for 45 minutes. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, and then and then pees in his own mouth. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I not so much who goes, because I feel like I could see myself going to that. But who is really committed to the fact that that is art with a capital A? That's the person I want to talk to. Actually, you know what? I don't know if I actually want to talk to that person. I want to like maybe observe that person like they're in a zoo or something. Yeah, right. And we need a team of therapists to, to observe them and go deep on the psyche of that individual. So unsurprisingly, perhaps from what's on the tape, Dave's idea of pop music at that time was very bleepy, minimal songs. He was writing about Tupperware parties, he said, and very mundane things. And inspired by bands like Kraftwerk, who were already out. And Mark basically heard some of those those pieces, those demos from Dave and said, hey, can I sing some? And Dave was like, well, yeah, you got a better voice than me, so let's let's form a band. Hence, Soft Cell is founded. Can you hear a big difference between Parliament and Funkadelic? Are you able to name the members of Wings who aren't Paul and Linda? And are you intimately familiar with every track on side six of The Clash's Sandinista? Then Discography's the new podcast for you. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. Our friend Dave Gebro and the guests explore an artist or band's entire recorded output and rate everything from zero to five stars. Some of the show's many amazing guests have included Jim Florentine doing four episodes on Black Sabbath, Lou Barlow rating The Zombies, members of Pavement doing a five-parter rating their own work, Mike Watt rating Minutemen, Anthony Fantano on The Velvet Underground, and Bob Mayer on The Replacements. He's also been releasing three shows a week for over a year in one of the most active Patreons humanly possible. You're not going to want to miss it. Discography is available wherever podcasts are consumed. We recommend you subscribe and listen. So... They bounce around. They're at college for a little while. They write a bunch of songs together. We're gonna we're gonna get into that later. Their first EP was self funded, and they printed about two thousand copies of it. It was paid for by Dave Ball's mother, and attempted to distribute them themselves as as a kind of demo to try to get uh, recording contract interest. Right, and they were playing live. I had read that she gave them you know two thousand pounds, and they recorded it on a two track tape machine seems like kind of a lot of a lot of money <laughs> yeah. how much of that went towards like cocaine and you know ketchup to smear on your naked body right <laughs> there had to be some drugs involved somewhere so but they were they were playing around leeds the city of leeds and putting on these big shows because again mark's a performance artist right performance is the main thing for him and a guy called steve-o sees them this is pre-Jackass Steve-O. This is a British Steve-O from another, from another era. <laughs> the original Steve-O. <laughs> right, right. And he's, he's impressed by their show, and he offers them... He is associated with this record label called Some Bizarre Records. And he, they're putting together a compilation album. And so he offers Soft Cell to put a, a song of theirs on a compilation album. And that kind of is what kicks off... Uh, their career. At the same time, Steve-O says, hey, actually, I'm also going to be your manager. So this is an interesting grift, I think, to just go around to young people's shows. We should, we're probably at the age where we should start getting into this. We should just, <laughs> just sign people over into management contracts that they can't get out of and exploit them. So the song makes the compilation. And out of that, they get a bigger record deal with a record company called Phonogram. And so they, they released a single called Memorabilia, and it but didn't chart at all, unfortunately. It had kind of their first semi-major label distribution, but it, it failed to chart. The label was ready to drop them at that point, but Steve-O went in on their behalf and he persuaded them to release one more single. And despite having hundreds 
of songs to choose from that they had written, they agreed that a cover song would be best. They were they were right, by the way. They were right. <laughs> yeah, they were definitely right. They were definitely yeah. right. So that leads us to, as we've already alluded to and played a clip of, the story of Tainted Love. So Mark knew this song from the Northern Soul DJ clubs in the north of England, and he loved... He loved the song, and and first I should offer a little backstory on, on what that all means. So Northern Soul was this movement, this scene in the UK, where at the same time that US clubs were starting to move on into disco and, and kind of leave Motown behind, UK clubs and the audiences there still really loved Motown-era records. And there was this thirst in those cl- Northern clubs for new tracks, not the, just the same old singles that they had all heard before. And it led DJs to go on deeper and deeper dives. So Tainted Love, the original Tainted Love, was released as a B-side in 1965 by a woman called Gloria Jones. And in fact, its A-side was a flop. So really, the single didn't go too far. Tainted Love was the B-side of that original single. The single didn't sell that much. It was not a known quantity, except on these deep dive DJs and at these club nights that they would play. Now, you might recognize the name Gloria Jones because she was the woman who would later become romantically involved with Mark Bolan of T-Rex and actually was driving the car in the car crash that ultimately killed Mark Bolan later on in the 70s. So I can blame two things on her, the popularity of Soft Cell and having to listen to this album and Mark Bolan's death. Okay. Good I think this is a good yeah, moment because yeah. I don't know if a lot of people have heard this because it wasn't a huge success and the soft cell version definitely eclipsed this version. But let's play a clip of the 1965 version of Tainted Love. song had come out some years back, but it was more or less lost to time, except these DJs. Now, I heard two competing stories about how it actually got into the hands of a UK DJ. One seems much more plausible than the other, but I'll leave it to you to decide. One was the fact that a UK DJ was just at a record store in America, in Philly, in fact, and, and happened to find it and bring it back. Another story that I heard repeated a couple times was that a US sailor some for some reason had this 45 on him when they docked in UK and in, he wanted to buy a pack of cigarettes when he got there and he didn't have any cash or British cash on him and he paid with a 45. However it happened, it became a UK club hit in the 70s and guys like Mark Allman and Dave Ball who were going to these clubs in the north of England in Leeds were familiar with it, right? And they also loved that it was associated with Mark Bolin, even even kind of distantly. And so that's kind of how they how they zoned in on it. Now, I should mention that because the song was picking up a little heat, even this small amount of heat in this relatively small region of the world, Gloria Jones even went back and re-recorded it with Mark Bolin as the producer in 1976. And so we're not going to play a clip of that one, but we'll put it on the playlist. Listen to all three of these tracks in a row. It's like a walk through the musical decades because it really is a very similar arrangement, but it really has a lot of cliches from the 60s, then the 70s, then the 80s, and each successive version. I was kind of shocked by how it's all there pre the soft cell version of it. Even the bump, bump hits, everything's all there. There's not a lot of liberties taken with with the soft cell version. No. There was like, what if we can't sing very well and we do it with synth instead? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny, Tom. No, I totally agree with that. And it's particularly the part you just mentioned, the... I've got to bop, bop, run away. That's kind of, it's implied in the 1965 version, which I had heard before, but it is strongly emphasized in the 1970s version. 
So, you know, in other words, having heard that original 1965 version and then hearing Tainted Love, I was like, oh, they added that. That's cool. But no, they did not. They no. totally picked that up from the Mark Bolan one. Well, then I wonder which one they heard. I wonder if they followed <laughs> both versions and then made their own or if they only heard the 70s one. In the interviews, they talked about the 1965 one consistently. But this okay. next one came out in 1976. They're thinking about recording it in 1980. I feel like there's a pretty good chance, and they knew it was connected to Mark Bowen. They they would have listened to both versions, I can almost guarantee. But the one that was really a hit in the DJ clubs was the 60s version. So July 17th, 1981, they released Tainted Love, the single. Tainted Love reaches number one. It sells something like 1.3 million copies. It becomes the biggest selling single of 1981. Crazy success compared to what they could have dreamed of. And speaking of numbers, that leads us to our favorite segment here, by the numbers. So first number I want to throw out to you guys is the number six. As in the countries, this Tainted Love single went number one in. That's UK, Australia, Belgium, West Germany, South Africa, Canada. It made the top five in another eight countries. Ireland, Spain, Sweden, Netherlands, Austria, France, New Zealand, Switzerland. Now, take note that none of those is the U.S., where, as far as I can tell, the song is also ubiquitous, So, but it only ever reached number eight, unfortunately. But that gives you a sense of the reach of this track. I wonder who had publishing rights on it. Well, I'm about to tell you that. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will say that my wife does not know or listen to music at all. And I was like, oh, well, this is the album with Tainted Love on it. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I played it. She's like, oh, yeah, okay. I know this song. Like, everybody knows this song. If you've gone to any 80s parties in college like we did back when, you know, the 80s were a cool throwback thing, this was played all the time. This is the song that I feel like if you're trying to get shorthand for 80s in a movie, if I was making a shitty movie and I was like, hey, well, how, do, how do I make people understand it's the 80s? It's like this or like... Blue Monday, maybe, would be the other one that would just be shorthand for 80s. It's that powerful. It's very high up in the echelon of 80s songs. And I feel like we've we've referenced that concept that you just mentioned, Tom, a lot in regards to the 60s and the 70s. Like, how do you place someone in a decade within five seconds in a film? So, yeah, I totally agree. This would, this would work for the 80s. It's extremely successful. Okay, the number next number I want to throw out to you guys is the number 200. That's the number of songs or song ideas that Soft Cell had heading into the studio for nonstop erotic cabaret. Lucky for us, they whittled it down <laughs> to only 10. They just picked the cream. They just, you know, ladled the cream right off <laughs> yeah, the top of right that. The top. Right, right. You know, I'm a fan and we've talked about it. I think we've talked about it on the podcast, but certainly Tom and I have talked about it in terms of our own writing and recording projects that volume sometimes does win the day. Because if you just want better quality material, making more of it is not a terrible strategy. If, you, if you're able to make more of it and then take only the best, then theoretically, the quality should just keep going up and up. Mm. If, if you can successfully edit out the bad stuff. But <laughs> yeah, and in I'm theory, sure. communism works, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so these were the best 10 ideas they had, or really nine ideas, since Tainted Love is a cover, as we mentioned. Next number I want to throw out to you guys. I know listeners have been dying for this. 43. That's the number of times sex dwarf is said during the song sex dwarf. I know listeners miss us counting up lyrical peccatillos in these songs. Um, it's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. And the last number I want to throw out to y'all is millions, or at least a hell of a lot. That's the amount of money that Soft Cell missed out by putting yet another cover on the B-side of Tainted Love. So they have Tainted Love, a cover on the A-side. It goes, it sells all these copies. If they had just put one of their songs on the B-side that they wrote, they would be in line to make lots and lots of money. But no, they put an old Motown song on the B-side called Where Did Our Love Go? So they basically made almost no money off the Tainted Love single. They had they had two hundred songs, <laughs> and they two hundred. That's ridiculous. I mean, I'm not saying that Where Did Our Love Go helped Tainted Love sell, but if I'm looking at a single and it's 
Tainted Love, and the other side is Sex Dwarf. I might be like, I, I don't know if I'm buying this one. <laughs> oh, I know, man. That would, that would help me with the purchase, but <laughs> it was a blunder of a financial decision. And speaking of misguided financial decisions that will haunt you for years, we love doing this podcast every week. <laughs> But it sure does take time and energy, let me tell you, sir. So here's a reminder that if you love what we do, there's a couple simple ways to support us. One, easiest one, tell a friend, another music nerd, about our podcast. Two, leave a rating or review. Three, buy some of our merch. We get a little royalty every time you buy a t-shirt through the Amazon store. Or four, join our Patreon and buy us a beer once a month. We promise to keep reinvesting in the show, making it better, and of course, we are going to keep doing the same weekly show for free every single week. But if we've given you some great laughs or information or made you angry, any of those things, it, they're all, it's all emotions, guys. Yeah. Consider supporting us at any of the links in the episode description. If the people we've made angry joined our Patreon, we would just be able to quit our jobs. We'd be rolling, <laughs> rolling in the dough. All right. It's a good point. It's a good point. Hey, you got to aim high, you know? Yeah. So, Marty, you asked who gets that publishing. The guy who wrote Tainted Love originally is a dude called Ed Cobb. This is his only claim Ed to Cobb. fame. So I assume he retired, certainly by 1981 when this came out. He was a founding member of a 60s group called The Four Preps. Hmm. The Four Preps. Yeah. Hmm. We'll, add a, we'll add a Four Preps song on the playlist so you guys can, can check him out. But he penned this one. It got recorded three different times. Third time's a charm. It sold millions of copies. Oh, he's credited for writing Rihanna's song, S.O.S. Interesting. So he took five decades off and he decided to come out of retirement. <laughs> Good old Ed Cobb. So basically, because of the success of the single, right, they now have a green light to go and record and release an official debut album, and they do that. And a few months later, in November of 1981, nonstop erotic cabaret gets released. To put you your heads in the time and place, I looked up the number one song on the Billboard charts. Any guesses, guys? 81? Jackson song? Uh, Something off off the wall? I'll give you a hint, Tom. We've played this song live. Gates of Steel? (laughs) No. (laughs) It is Physical by Olivia Newton-John. Okay. That makes way more sense than a Devo song. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Rob, can you can you tell me? And I don't know if you have the inf- sure. this information, but they released "Tainted Love" as a single, huge hit. Record companies yes. like go to the studio, give us some more gold, <laughs> and they come back with this. How does the record company respond? Are they like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Or are they like, "No, print it. This is amazing. This is gonna sell a million copies." I mean, it's not it's not like A and M Records, right? It's like some like one-off brand, right? It's not a big label they're on. Even so. Even so. I think it continued to sell off of the strength of Tainted Love. They did release a couple other singles, which we're going to talk about, and it seemed like they had a couple years of very successful touring. So they ended up putting out a second record. People, let's, let's start by saying that people online, anyway really love nonstop erotic cabaret. I suppose you could say that about any record under the sun, that it's got its fanship out there. But man, people speak in hushed tones about the poetry of Mark <laughs> Almond. And it's a little, it's hard to fathom. Although, I, again, I'll say what I like about the material and, and what I don't like. But they only made it as a band until about 1983 and then they broke up through some kind of irreconcilable differences and went on to do their own solo projects. Now I should say they staged a successful comeback tour in like 2019 where they played the O2 arena and, uh, and one of the closer, they played sex dwarf after dated love. <laughs> so course. it got a big crowd response. Didn't uh pitchfork give this album like a, fucking 8.5 out of 10 or something like that something ridiculous probably good golly yeah it's there's a lot of retrospective love for this record i wanted to point out too just because i feel like it'll hit home for some of us on their follow-up they do a hendrix medley as one of the tracks (laughs) (laughs) and i kid you not it has fewer plays on spotify than the songs we've published good 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 (laughs) so you know take take that all with a grain of salt but 
listen, I think what Soft Cell were, were going for here, and to give them some credit where credit's due, they were on the forefront of this thing called synth pop, and they wanted to speak about dark themes. I heard Mark Allman say this thing about the underlying darkness in Thatcher's Britain. Now, were they the first band to ever write about wild, kinky sex and illicit drug use? Certainly not, but they were the first ones to pair it with synthesizers, maybe. <laughs> that seems to be the entirety of the innovation here. Is It's all this, but with synth. It's like fucking the Malibu Stacy's new hat. I don't get it. It's, there's not a whole lot new here that I really found to sink my teeth into, with the exception of quite possibly my least favorite 80s synth trope, which is just the octaves of the that shit's all over this album, and everybody stole that. So I guess good on them for creating the worst possible use of synthesizers in the 80s. So I couldn't find too much information about exactly how this was recorded, but I am sure that it was done in a rush because the Tainted Love single came out in late July of 1981. And this thing, and then I assume took a little bit of time to sell lots of records. And then this was out by the end of November. So we're talking about a four-month window here where they had to whittle all those song ideas down. I mean, who knows how many songs they demoed, by the way, to get to the other nine. And I think that shows. I think that's really is my biggest complaint here. I think there's some interesting ideas. I think there's kernels of something that could be cool. And like Marty said, I didn't dive too deep into that second record. Maybe they became more themselves over time. Great. But here it feels careless. Careless at best. Uh, for a lot of these tracks, and that it suffers from that. So maybe that's a segue to actually start talking about the material itself. We've already been kind of ripping it apart. Sorry, soft cell fans, who I believe call themselves cellmates out Ooh. there in the world. Not softies. I know, I'm just, I'm kidding. I made <laughs> <Yeah>. that up. <laughs> but we're going to, now we're going to tell you more specifically what's wrong with your taste. Let's go to the very first song on the record of their debut record from Soft Cell. This song is called Frustration. nice tone for the uh for how i feel about this album my first note after my first listen through and so for people out there who aren't aware we've been trying to stack a couple of episodes so that we can take some time off around the christmas break this is the third podcast that rob and i have done in the last calendar week and so i didn't have to listen to this album for too long i had to listen to it a lot but not for too long <laughs> and my first note is just oh no <laughs> like, as soon as this started, that was my first note. Oh, oh no. Oh, goddamn. This is going to be very, very irritating. And it was. I hate this song. I really, really hate this song a lot. <laughs> well, hey, they found, a, they found a sax player, you know? They brought a sax player on. Who, who is that? I Let me tell you, Marty. So the sax solo ain't bad. It's a guy called David Tolfani, who played on the Nightfly. Ah, all right. <laughs> what? Good for He's him. the alto sax player on IGY. <laughs> Jeez. All right. That's weird. Probably the most redeeming, certainly the most redeeming thing about this song. I do think it's a good indication of what you're going to get, which is to say, 
you listen to this song and you're like, hey, Mark, it's the first track on the debut record. Do you want to like pre-write the melody or do you think you could just wing it in a single take and never look back? The second one, you're just going to... Okay, yeah, go for it, man. <laughs> yeah. See what happens. I get it. You're the lead singer and that's all you do, but writing melodies is not really your thing. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Why yeah. is he talking like a caveman? I have car. I have job. Yeah, that's what I wrote. Caveman. It sounds, yeah, yeah. I am man. I, yeah, yeah. That part is so, so, so weird. And also, like, the theme is boring. Like, okay, like, how many bands do, like, the fed up of suburban life, I'm different, I want out lyrics, you know? At this point, it's tired, even in 1981. So ridiculous. It's that stupid straw man of... Everybody who has a job and lives in the suburbs is just frustrated and hates their fucking life, but I'm free and cool. And like, (laughs) shut up, asshole. No, you're not, number one. And number two, like, I'm sure there's plenty of very happy people that do really weird shit with their wives when they're behind closed doors, man. Not everybody's as, like, buttoned up as you think they are. Just because it took me several listens to tune in to these lyrics, not so much that they're hard to understand, but I felt that my ears were being assaulted. I, I kind of had to shut down like I was in Guantanamo or something. But let's read the lyrics just in case anyone hasn't dialed into them yet. I have life, ordinary wife. I have car, a favorite bar. I have job, a moderate wage. I get the pains that come with age. This is like some nursery rhyme shit, not to mention the bad punctuation. It's ridiculous. I will say, at a minute and 18, his pronunciation of the word girls, where he says, I watch girls, that turned me off the entire album. I was like, I was like, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm going to get there. And then he pronounced, I was like, oh my God, I cannot stand you. I can't stand your voice. You're so bad. I watch girls. I, I'm so ordinary. There's a lot of questionable pronunciation and vocal affects on this on this album. Yeah. Whew. But the song was definitely very frustrating. And it's also monotonous. And that's my biggest problem with a lot of these songs, is they just really end up being kind of monotonous. And they're really long. They do not have to be this long. Why are the songs so fucking long in this album? Why is this a four-minute song? It doesn't make any sense. It does feel like a really bizarre way to start your record. There's pretty clearly nothing. I mean, how is this pop music? You know, they they kept talking about synth pop. Oh, this is an early synth pop progenitor. But pop implies catchy melodies and choruses and things like that. I'm not hearing any of that here. This is almost like synth punk, but it's not saying enough or angry enough or in your face enough to be punk it's leather clad s&m pop tom come on oh okay okay (laughs) no the punk comparison is a good one because i did see an interview where mark almond said that the first year he was at leeds was the same year that, that leeds polytechnic the college where the two of them met that that's when the sex pistols came through on their anarchy in the uk tour and you know kind of one of the obviously one of the early punk shows that anyone would have seen, if not the very first. And he just talked about being inspired by that band. Like, anyone can do it. You could just stand up there and have a go. I, I'm very uncharitable towards these dudes, generally speaking. I, I don't think that what they're offering is very compelling. But I'm going to guess he probably wasn't even all that pervy. Probably watches really normal porn. That'd be my guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he does He does smear cat food all over his naked body, but that's probably just for attention. Yeah, that's clearly just for attention. You know, it's I'm tempted to be charitable to them in the sense that it's not their fault that the world gave them a career, but that doesn't mean that I have to like this material. <laughs> that's a fair point. Uh, actually, he was given the OBE. It's like a step under knighthood by the by King Charles. In, like, 2010. King Charles. So he's, like, a legit British celebrity. This is another case where Diamory is showing his Britishness, I think. Yeah, that actually was maybe one... That was one of my notes, is maybe it's an America-Britain divide. But I did not... I don't understand why this would be revolutionary or even interesting. Well, they actually have two albums on the list. 
Fucking dimery, man. Come on. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just kidding. It's only this one. Okay. Good. Thank <laughs> God. I just, I just want to anger you more. <laughs> okay. Let's move it right along to a revisit of the song you've already heard. I know Marty always says you've heard these songs a million, billion times. But I think in this case, you literally have heard this song one billion times. It's called Tainted Love. Now I know I've got to... Run away, I've got to get away You don't really want any more from me To make things right You need someone to hold you tight And you think love is to pray But I'm sorry I don't pray that way Once I ran to you funny about this song or maybe sad about this song is i bet you people go up to like david balls or whatever almond mark almond and he explains like oh have you ever heard tainted love and everyone's like of course you know that's the cure or you know like that's people people probably people probably think it's some other band and it probably takes them like people probably walk away from those conversations being like who that guy said he he they, he recorded this song. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> soft sell. That definitely doesn't sound right. It's Depeche Mode or something like that. Right, exactly. So this is an actual song, right? It's written, and it really stands out for that reason. There's a clear sense of song structure. There's melodies. There's catchy, rhythmic things. And as we already discussed, the the arrangement really didn't change much even from the 1965 version. And then I think what they didn't find there, they picked up from the 1976 version. But a couple compliments, I think, of even how they approach this song. One is all three versions of the song are under three minutes long, which I think is the right call. But I was a little surprised by that because it, it kind of feels like once the song is on, it's reverberating in your head for weeks or something. Two is the upbeat synth submarine chime the kind of ping in the water thing that feels like an additive piece of the arrangement and i do think it's memorable and it comes on an on an upbeat on two upbeats in a row so it's a little rhythmically interesting i also like the little synth hit he does at the very beginning the that little thing I'm 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 scraping for things they added to the arrangement that weren't already there. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, they, what they added is that they made it way more memorable than the original version. I mean, that there's there's few songs like that, like "I Will Always Love You," that which was a Dolly Parton song that was covered by Whitney Houston, and even Nirvana covering "The Man Who Sold the World." There's something about all of three of the that and the, or those and this this song that that they, it's kind of elevated in a way. So they definitely added that. Yeah, they, yeah, for sure. I will say there's a lot less going on in this song than I thought that there was going into it. Because in your head, you have a version of "Tainted Love" that you just play in your head, and the version of "Tainted Love" that I play in my head is much more filled out than the version that you're going to get on this album. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's it's kind of elegantly minimal. But I did think that they were doing a whole lot more. And again, like, I don't understand how this concept was just completely foreign to Mark Allman. But he sounds good when there's a melody to sing. He actually has not a bad voice. Yeah. He does have a good voice. And he has an interesting voice, too. And one I noticed they doubled him on a few key moments here, which I think would have really helped on other songs. Because that kind of helps a shaky key, which which happens in a lot of his vocal takes. Help shore it up. Now, apparently, this is also a first take, so it doesn't seem like he was really into dialing in the vocals. But you're right, it is kind of an indication of what could have been if they just sat down and focused a little more on pop melodies. I think it could have created something really, really cool. Well, the thing is, writing good melodies is kind of hard. And instead, you can just kind of not do that. 
and kind of just kind of like this all the time. And uh, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's the Fred Schneider of synth pop. Oh, good Lord. I thought Fred Schneider was the Fred Schneider of synth pop. <laughs> uh, Fred Schneider's great. You know, also about the, about the minimalism thing, though, you're, you're right. I credit where credit's due. They did kind of make the whole track a little more relaxed. I felt like in the 60s version, in the 70s version, you can hear the cocaine on the track, I feel. And it's cool in a different way. In the 60s version, it is still very four on the floor, like really in your face with that bass line. This does pull back from that in a helpful way and give the song a little bit more room to breathe. It's it's a subtle difference, but it is there. I, I also like the lyric that I really like from the song is, once I ran to you, now I'll run from you. I feel like they deliver that line effectively. And it always, for some reason, every time I hear this song, that's the line that like sticks in my head. And it's not as like delivered as well, I think, in the in the original versions. Sure, yeah, yeah, I mean, fair it's enough. It's like, a clever line. Once I say hello, and then and then later I wave goodbye. It's like that kind of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, let's keep this train rolling on to on to the next song on our list, which is called. Sex Dwarf. I would like you on a long black leash. I would parade you down the high street. You've got the attraction, you've got the pulling power. Walk my little doggy, walk my little sex dwarf. We can make a scene, we'll be a team. Making the headlines sounds like a dream. When we hit the floor, you just watch them move aside. We will take them for a ride, I'll ride. They all love your miniature ways. You know what they say about I know this song might sound ridiculous, but I actually read an interview with Mark Allman where he explained that it's an allegory about the generational trauma brought on by the Falkland Islands conflict in a post-industrial Britain. Clearly, clearly, yes. Just kidding. It's about it's about actual sex dwarfs, guys. It's it's from like a, it's it's taken from like a newspaper article, right? From like the the a British tabloid. Did you read that? <laughs> no, I didn't. The read British that. Ta- yeah, yeah, yeah. The British tabloid called News of the World. The headline read. Sex Dwarf Lures a Hundred Disco Dollies to a Life of Vice. He didn't even write those lines? So, no. So after that, the song just writes itself, you know? Yeah. Well, those are pretty much the only lyrics in the song. Listen, I, can I say, though, <laughs> this is actually my favorite song. I mean, Saved for Tainted Love. I thought I that... Could see, yeah, I could, see, I could see covering this in my synth duo. This would be the one I would pick, certainly. I, so I, I saw someone perform this in karaoke on Thursday night. What? And... Yeah, I swear Marty to God. lives in Portland. Okay, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a crowd pleaser. Everyone's laughing, but by around the thirty seventh or thirty eighth sex dwarf, you could tell that people are you know are beginning to to lose their interest. There is no reason whatsoever that this song needs to be over five minutes long. Yeah, they are really beating the premise into the ground. Now, when I originally heard this, I was like, this is fucking terrible. And then I kind of flipped mentally to like a pervy Weird Al type of mentality. And I was like, okay, uh, yeah, I, I get what you're going for. It's funny. I don't like the whole, oh, we're freaking out the squares thing, but whatever. It's okay. The thing that really did it for me is it's like at a minute 10, the... They are sort of doing the call and response sex dwarf part, and the woman says sex dwarf, and then the guy comes in and does like a sex dwarf. <laughs> I was like, oh, that flipped me <laughs> mentally. I was like, oh, this is just supposed to be funny. Okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah, it's it is pretty funny. It is it is my favorite. And did you guys watch the video for this? Because apparently that caused quite a stir at the moment. It's it has dwarves in it wielding chainsaws and naked women and wow. All right. I do have a complaint about this song, and it's a complaint that I have mentioned before and I think is a big problem on the album. The synth in this is so goddamn loud compared to the vocals. It's, like, distracting. Right at the very beginning, 
the synth fart sounds are 20% louder than the vocals. And the vocals get completely drowned out in it. And I don't know why they made that choice. It, it, again, maybe it's just they didn't work on it that hard. But you listen back to it and you're like, just tap that down 15, 20% or tap the vocal up and then it will sound more cohesive. It'll sound a lot better. I don't get it. Maybe they're just so enamored with the sounds and that's the reason they chose to do it. Yeah, they're, they're no Brian Eno, that's for sure. No, no. I kept thinking that the synth lines are more melodic than the melody itself. I mean, they're still pretty simple, but they're more memorable than any melody that Mark Allman sings. Sure, they definitely are. But it's still the, the lyrics of the song. And let's be frank, the entire reason to listen to this song is to listen to the weird shit that he says about the sex dwarf. So if I can't hear that, then what am I doing here, right? <laughs> I came for sex dwarves, damn it. Seriously. So, so like I said, man, when they reunited in 2019 and played and recorded and released the live show from the O2 Arena, this was the second to last tune. So this is this is definitely one of their hits. What in was their the mind. last tune? We're gonna get to it, Tom. Oh, I, I could have guessed. I probably should have guessed. God damn it! <laughs> yeah, they played it after Tainted Love, though. Maybe maybe this was the first encore. It wasn't super clear from the recording. Maybe they closed with Tainted Love and then came out for a two song encore, of which this was the first song. It's possible. I do think this song is kind of a cult hit. In some circles, yeah. Well, I, clearly, if it was sung at karaoke last week and that was totally disconnected, you didn't you didn't dare anyone to do that, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. You're not going to go to to a soft cell reunion concert, buy tickets just to hear Tainted Love. That's a good point. Yeah, because even the people who actually just like Tainted Love don't know it's soft cell. Yeah, right. <laughs> I hope there was a lot of sex dwarf merch at the merch table. I, I still, Marty, I really thought you were going to reference what I think might be my favorite headline of all time, which is from the Daily Telegraph, which is Gordon Ramsay's dwarf porn double Percy Foster dies in Badger Den, which I think might be the greatest <laughs> headline of all time. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. I guess we're going to move move on down the line here. The next song we want to talk about is called Entertain Me. Trying to please all these people around me Is trying to reach for the moon, the moon. I see their faces looking so empty Saying I hope that they'll finish soon, so soon. Could be a chat show yep, 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 yep. Could be a go-go Reaction would be the same So here I go though Why I don't know Trying to prove myself again Entertain me, I'm a blank as can be And I've seen it before And I've done it before And I think that I like it But no, I don't like it It just goes on over and You know? I thought it was going to be a tough pick Rob's low point guessing game this time, but <laughs> nope. This is, I mean, this is the low point among low points. This is the Marianas Trench from the normal ocean bottom of this album. But yes. goddamn, this song sucks. It's uniquely <laughs> terrible pretty. is my note. Uniquely <laughs> terrible. So you were a theater major, you say? <laughs> no kidding. Right, yeah, that, this song's where you start to see kind of, if, if I had to guess where they were going between Sex Dwarf and this song, it's definitely some sort of like performative, dark, you know, soundtrack to a musical or something like that. Yeah, it's got Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of written all over Rocky it. Rocky Horror, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking, Rocky Horror. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, but anybody who writes for musicals knows that when you're singing your chorus, you don't have a bunch of people shouting the entire time, completely opposite lines directly <laughs> over what you're saying so that you can't tell what either of them is saying. What the fuck is that? That's the dumbest decision ever. And the synth sounds like a goddamn car horn in this song, which is not meant to be a pleasing sound. <laughs> I thought it was a car yeah. horn. It's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> yeah, my favorite part was when he has the line, he's all talking about being a performer, right? And the challenges of being a performer. And then he says, hitting the wrong note, where he proceeds to hit, I'm pretty confident that it's the not even the note he was aiming for as <laughs> the wrong note. <laughs> he hit the wrong, wrong note. <laughs> That's correct, yes. 
fucking meta. Meta. Playing the wrong tune, hitting the wrong note. This is when my nuts become frayed. It's falling apart. Why did we ever start? And still, you think we'll be paid? This definitely could have used some sex dwarves, in my opinion. But, you know, here's a great songwriting tip for you, which is if you have a very weak melody over the chorus, it's not really strong and it's not really repetitive, what you should do is have a an annoying synth double that melody the entire time just to drive <laughs> home how repetitive and fucking terrible the melody is. Oh, good Lord. This was just a construction mess. Again, this is the kind of thing where if you have a budget to record an album and you get this after a couple of takes, you're like, okay, I can workshop this. I can take some elements. We can redo it. You don't just say, well, let's just fucking print this. This is, this, is the, this is done. This is the one. You just sold a million copies of a single. You can take more time in the studio to perfect these songs. I guess that they were feeling rushed and they had to get it out quickly to capitalize on the success of Tainted Love, but it can't be that hard to workshop songs for an extra day. I, again, I, th- yeah, I think maybe a charitable read would be that they were trying to put performance art to tape. And, and that's why this kind of wild, abandoned approach to recording was important to them. Why this improvised feel, this anything can happen on the record feel was there. I kind of just feel like they can't quite commit to a lane. Like we said, Sex Dwarf is legitimately funny, and I liked it more as it went along, although it definitely goes on too long. This is trying to strike a similar chord, I think, but it's just not working for me. Frustration's kind of in the same lane. And then they tried to get Torch Song with the last tune. So let's play a clip of what I am confident to say is their second biggest hit, called Say Hello, Wave Goodbye. Standing in the door of the pink flamingo Crying in the rain It was a kind of so-so love And I'm gonna make sure it never happens again You and I, it had to be the Standing choke of the year You were asleep around Lost and found And all for me I fear I tried to make it work You in a cocktail skirt And me in a suit well, it just wasn't me. You're used to wear- absurdly long, absurdly long. I mean, just, just sway, just so. Long. It never changes. For five <laughs> minutes, it doesn't change. Except his sense of melody changes every single time he goes back to the well. Like he is so <laughs> adrift. It reminds me, Marty. You already brought up karaoke, but you know that moment when you're up on the karaoke stage. And the words come up on the screen, and you're like, oh, wait, I don't know the verse melody at all. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, it happens all the time. So I'm just going to like sing talk my way through it and just give it a go and just fi- try to find it against the backing track, which is very sparse, and maybe just add question marks occasionally at the end of lines. That's what it sounds like for the whole song. Yeah, bad karaoke is actually a pretty good descriptor of a decent amount of this album, I would say. I don't know why people like this song i just don't i don't get it it's so long again synth is kind of partly following the melody again but the melody is so inconsistently sung that it never really matches up there's not a lot of consistency i didn't need a ballad on your skanky fuck album just (laughs) give me some more skanky fuck stuff and we can move on also how do we know people like this song just because rob said it this was like a huge hit in the uk man (laughs) Was it? Yeah. Oh, okay. This was their closer at the 2019 concert, and it has the second most plays on Spotify by a long shot. Okay. Well. Now, it is dwarfed yeah. by Tainted Love's plays, <laughs> but we're still talking about 21 million plays compared to some stuff on the record has, you know... 500,000. Dude, okay. It was ranked number 65 on Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 100 best songs of 1982. 
and ranked 12 on Classic Pop Magazine's list of the 40 best synth pop songs. This song. This song that we were just listening to. I want to be clear here. I can get into a pop ballad torch song. <laughs> I think if they had worked on the song a little more. Actually, when the song started... So the first couple times I listened to the record, I didn't notice this song really particularly. Again, I think my ears kind of just shut down as a defense mechanism somewhere in the middle of the listening experience. But then later when I was reading reviews and interviews, people were talking about the song in hushed tones, talking about what a hit it was, how romantic and melodic it was. And then I, I remember going back to play it and being like, okay, yeah, maybe this is a good song. Looking for that sentimental emotional sense of melody that you could ring out of this i think potentially if you just went in and wrote a little harder Mm. but it is so all over the map it fluctuates between careless and outright horrific and he definitely does not stay in key i I know we haven't we don't have adam here to cite the specific timestamps where mark almond is not in tune but you don't have to go that far into the tracks to find these spots no Rob, maybe what you need to do is listen to Say Hello, Wave Goodbye 91, which was the remixed and re-released version of this song in 1991. Uh, They really needed to go to the well with that one again, apparently. They didn't get enough out of it this time. I feel like people who say they like this song, it's a Stockholm Syndrome of having bought the record for Tainted Love and then just looking for something to latch onto to justify why... You have this in your collection. Soft sell stands. All you softies out there, give us a <laughs> give us a, write us a line here and uh, let us know why you love this song. I, I love imagining Mark Allman, you know, just like going to the grocery store and buying a can of beans, you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're adding like an addition to like Ed Cobb's gravestone in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> With their 600, 690 millionth play on Spotify. <laughs> I like how your version of poverty is you man going to buy a can of beans. <laughs> like a hobo style, going to eat them under the bridge. <laughs> paints a picture just to follow up on what tom said as we're nearing the end of our focus list here if you love soft cell well first of all congratulations for listening this far but i would really love to hear about this song specifically so again i like sex dwarf i understand it's camp appeal tainted love we we said we like that i want you to defend this song i really do want to hear that so please someone out there write to us okay We're done listening to this record. We're done talking about this record. Now, let's get to the most exciting part of the podcast, where we vote on whether or not you really need to have listened to this before you slip this mortal coil. Tom, what do you say? No. No, 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 no. God, no. No. (laughs) Marty, how do you say? I would would specifically recommend people to not listen to this album. Like try to like even if you listen to this episode, like don't even bother. Just kidding. No, no. I uh, it's okay. It's just, it's not on my list though. Yeah, I'm gonna round it out with a third no. No, no huge surprise here. I came in with an open heart. I really did because, as we mentioned, this is a famous example of a one hit wonder with their song "Tainted Love," which is a good track, right? And what I was hoping for was to discover a one-hit wonder that actually had been falsely put into that category, that actually did have other material like that, where Tainted Love, the single, would fit with the other material. It does not, in my opinion. And it, in a way, reinforced the idea of why one-hit wonders should remain one-hit wonders, sadly. so One of my alternate tweets was... They're a one-hit wonder that you don't have to wonder why they only had one hit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no wondering necessary. Okay, that is a unanimous no vote. Soft Cell, Mark Almond, Dave Ball, these guys are still around and alive, and I think making music these days and thinking of themselves as British music royalty. Sorry, guys, sorry to burst your, your sex dwarf bubble you shall not be added to the list. Hopefully we saved you just a little bit of hardship, dear listener. 
I think I'm going to do a couple things next before we end the show. One is to dip my hand in the old mailbag and pull out some messages from you guys. So the first one comes to us from Michael from Poland. Might be the first Poland Polish fan we've had. It's pretty cool. He says, hey guys, the podcast is great fun. It's wholesome and funny and good spirited. Did you hear that, Tom? He calls you wholesome. Mm. <laughs> He'll learn. <laughs> With just the right amount of sardonic humor and brutal honesty, and on top of that, it's educational. So many nice words. I also love being confronted with different perspectives on the records I already know. I find it endlessly fascinating how subjective music taste is and how different people can perceive the same albums in such a different light. The aesthetic criteria they adopt and often inexplicable personal preference going into that. I also feel like I've learned a lot about your individual tastes in music, and so I find it really interesting to hear how differently you react to the same songs and albums sometimes, and sometimes even subvert my expectations of what each of you might like or dislike. It helps illuminate the aspects of music that I would otherwise never realize. Well, first of all, I'm glad that we're still able to surprise you. Yeah, Rob, did you write that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's remarkably well-written. Classic... I'm just going to guess that this person does not have English as the first language because they write English so beautifully. <laughs> so good job on that. He goes on to say, hard disagree with you on Gang of Four Pixies, Velvets, and B-52s, but love the dissing of Kiss and the New York Dolls. You've also turned me on to stuff like Thundercat and John Martin and Spirit. All the best to y'all, and I can't wait. I can't wait for the next episode. Thanks a lot. Very complimentary. We're feeling the love all the way from Poland. I really appreciate it. I have one more short one. Justin writes, great show on pavement. I actually bought Wowie Zowie because in the late 90s, none other than Trey Anastasio was saying it was his favorite new album. Yeah. Okay. And needless to say, as someone who's mostly exposed to classic rock and fish, I was a little bewildered at first, but I did eventually come around and actually love Malcolm's solo work the best, which is, a I know, a bit of heresy. But anyway, all the records are solid. And all that said, you did touch on the self-aware arch meta aspect. And that's something that kind of bugs me about Stephen Malcolmus. He just has a smarmy, punchable face. <laughs> He's not wrong. So if you want to write to us and tell us how great we are, and spin a bunch of adjectives together, or tell us who has a punchable face, whether it's one of us or some more successful person out there in the world, please do so. We'd love to hear from you. We take all your messages directly into our hearts. You can send those over to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. And now I shall throw it over to Tom to give us our homework for the week. All right. I am going to let the Albinator out of its gimp box. I've had it in there for the last week. It's going to be all ready to be violated, I guess. I don't really know what goes on at these kind of parties. But we are going to spin that wheel and find out what we're going to listen to next. So without any further ado, we will be listening to... This should be a bit of a code switch here. The album is I've Got a Tiger by the Tail... And the artist is Buck Owens and his Buckaroos. Whoa. Uh, my ears already have whiplash, so yeah. that's a good thing, I guess. Yeah, it should be very interesting. I actually, I own a Buck Owens album. He's not bad. Cool. I've never heard a, I don't think I've ever heard a note of his music, so I'm excited to dive into that. But I know he's come up on the podcast before, one, because he gets a call out in Looking Out My Back Door, and two, because the Beatles covered him famously with Act Naturally. So we'll look forward to that. Listen along to old Buck Owens with all of us and join us here again next week to discuss for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. And I've been Marty. Aboosh. <laughs>